This is Leading Lines. I'm Derek Breff. Service learning is a form of experiential education where learning occurs through a cycle of action and reflection. As students seek to achieve real objectives for the community and deeper understanding and skills for themselves. Those are the words of Janet Eiler, Vanderbilt Emerita Professor of the Practice of Education, and her co-author Dwight Giles. Service learning and other forms of community-engaged teaching have been practiced at Vanderbilt for decades, and my teaching center has often been involved, having run multiple programs and faculty learning communities on the topic. Service learning takes students into the community in ways that benefit both the students and the community. But what happens when going into the community is no longer an option, either due to a pandemic or other reasons? On today's episode of Leading Lines, producer and colleague Stacy Johnson brings us an interview with Jill Lassiter, Assistant Professor of Health Sciences at James Madison University. Professor Lassiter recently wrote a faculty-focused article on service learning in a virtual world, including the changes she made to her service learning projects during the COVID-19 pandemic. In the interview, Professor Lassiter shares three principles for adapting service learning to challenging environments. She describes some of the virtual service learning projects her students have engaged in over the last couple of years and offers advice for instructors new to service learning on getting started with technology-supported community-engaged teaching. I'm Stacey Johnson, and I am here today with Dr. Jill Lassiter, Assistant Professor in the Department of Health Sciences at James Madison University. Jill, thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So I first learned about you because I read your article in Faculty Focus. And so I really enjoyed learning about your thoughts on service learning in a virtual world. And obviously you wrote this after the pandemic was already in in full form and we were all rethinking what our courses might look like in a new online focused world. Um, So I'm just going to sum up real quick. There were three tips that you gave. One was to simplify the experience. The second was to focus on reflection. And the third was to think creatively about community needs. And I thought it might be fun to start with those three things and talk about talk about your perspective, how it relates to your work. So when you say simplify the experience in service learning, what do you mean by that? Yeah, that's a great question to start with. I think writing that article was therapeutic for me because I had gone through maybe all the stages of grieving that we could no longer do service learning in person, which felt like a really huge loss. And it was, I'm not going to lie, like there's a lot lost. Um, But I also felt pretty committed to making it still work in some way. And so um, the first piece of that for me was really thinking about, okay, what are the most critical elements of service learning that we can't lose? And if I can only do those, and all the bells and whistles and extra things fall away, that's okay right now. Um, Let's just simplify and pick out those most critical elements. And um, those are obviously service has to be a piece that we're providing something to the community that they couldn't provide for themselves or wouldn't be providing for themselves. Um, And reflection is the other critical piece of service learning. And so it started with those two. And then 
the particulars for my class were human connection. I really um, think my students need to have real life conversations with people who are not like them. Um, and then thinking critically and creatively about how to solve problems. And so those were my kind of non-negotiables. Um, let's keep it as simple as possible, but we're gonna have those four things. And I think for other people, they're, um, Simple non-negotiables might look a little bit different. They're going to have to have the first two, right? Service and reflection. The others might be slightly different, but just boiling it down to the most important components. What are they? What can we not lose? Um, and then within that framework, doing the simplest thing we can to make that happen. Tell me more about what you actually did, how you pivoted from a more traditional service learning experience to an, an online focused one. Yeah, sure. So it looked different in different classes, depending on the learning objectives for that class. So in one of my classes where we're studying determinants of health, so what are all the um, socio-environmental factors that impact the behavioral decisions that people make? Um, in that class, what we had previously done was go into the community and work with marginalized population groups and encourage them to become physically active through uh, different types of games and activities. That was a real challenge for students because they discovered that not everyone loves physically active games the way that they might love them. And so shifting to online obviously looked a lot different, right? We aren't going into the community. We're not, we can't do games with people. We can't be in person. And in that class, the project shifted to more of a, a wellness coaching model where the students were matched with different individuals in the community who, who self-selected um, as saying, yeah, like I, I want to be healthier, but I feel stuck. I could use some support. So the service was really being their support person. Now, um, of course, in health, there are some boundaries because our students are not certified. They're not trained professionals. They can't offer certain types of advice, so to speak, but they can be a support person. They can have motivational conversations. Uh, they can practice some of the skills, active listening skills that we're learning in class. And so that was, again, the simplest way, right, that we could make connections with people in the community, learn from people who thought a lot differently than they did, um, but also provide a, a very basic kind of service in terms of being sometimes just a cheerleader, sometimes helping them find resources, um, but provide some kind of encouragement to meet a, an identified health goal. So it sounds like you were taking advantage of the same service learning network you had in place from pre-pandemic and developing a new model of of working with the same population, is that right? Not quite, because the population we were working with pre-pandemic were in some cases youth. Um, and so there just seemed to be too many consent issues there. And in other cases, um, marginalized groups that did not have easy access to the internet or maybe some computer skills that would be necessary to engage in these types of Zoom conversations. So. We connected with groups we were already connected with as much as possible, right? We definitely took advantage of that, but it did require extending that network. And one of the ways that I did that was through the students. 
So they helped to identify people in their lives that were willing to participate. And then we matched them with other students. Um, so the, they helped <laughs> to find our participants, which was really great. And then also there was maybe a little bit of a lower barrier um, for, for participants because they felt like they had some connection even if they weren't being matched with the person they already knew. All right, so I think that really speaks to your third principle there to think creatively about community needs because you can't do the same things. You're gonna have to be creative and flexible in how you think about new models and apply new models, but your students' learning goals were still being met. And they were still having those important experiences of trying things out in the real world. Yeah, one of my favorite creative projects that we did in a different class was um, we built on the this new industry that is like buying boxes full of fun things, right? This big reveal, I don't know, on like KiwiCo and FabFitFun, right? There, you just, you buy a box, it shows up at your house and you get all these cool things. And so in my program planning class where we used to go out into the community and deliver health promotion interventions, our students had to create health promotion boxes. And they had to figure out like, what would people be willing to pay for this? And what items do we put in it that are fun and engaging so they'll be excited to get it, but also then add an educational component to it so that they learn something about health. And so that really um, inspired a lot of creativity and a little bit of angst <laughs> because it is a lot harder to teach people about health when you can't actually talk to them. Um, but in some ways, it was beautiful. There are aspects of that that I will maintain even when we can be, be out in the community because it forced them to think about the way that they use multiple teaching modalities in different ways. That is really fun. I love those boxes. I love them. I would really want a health promotion box sent to my house. <laughs> it is a fun way to think differently. Yeah. Awesome. So. I think we've really talked about number one and number three, um, simplifying and thinking creatively, but do you think we could spend a few minutes talking about the role of reflection in service learning, not just service learning, but online service learning? You specifically in your article said um, reflection can play a, a larger, more central role in online service reflection, but I think just talking about the role of reflection in general Reflection is an important part of any learning experience, but certainly with service learning, there tends to be more emotion involved in the learning experience. Uh, oftentimes students and faculty alike are outside of our comfort zones. There's less predictability. And so being reflective becomes even more important. I try to create service learning experiences where students will have multiple interactions with the same people or group of people so that they have that chance to, to do something and then come back and think about it and think, okay, what went well? What didn't go well? Um, what might I try differently next time? Or what am I gonna do the same? Cause it was great. And then they get to actually then actively experiment with it again. And I'm really thinking through Holds entire reflective learning process. And all through that process in a, in a service learning environment, um, what's also happening is you're learning things in the classroom. And so you have an opportunity to both reflect individually, but also to reflect corporately and think about um, what are our shared experiences, what were different, 
Um, and then again, how is this fitting with what we're learning in the classroom? So if we're studying a particular behavior change theory, are the people that I'm working with um, fitting the model of what it, what I think should happen? If not, is there another theory that explains that or am I missing something? Um, and then going back and trying again. So I am curious if there are specific reflective practices or activities that you use with students in your different classes that you could share with us so we could like get a more of a concrete picture of what reflection looks like. Yeah, so I actually use a variety of reflective practices because I think that different students process differently and need to have different outlets for the way that they reflect. And so um, there's always a written component and it doesn't have to be lengthy. I sometimes let them use bullet points, sometimes it's paragraph format, um, but I do want them to write down their thoughts. I think that's important and it, it just forces their hand, right? Like you've got to spend at least 15 minutes doing some thinking before you come to class. Um, the second thing I do is small group processing. And so part of this, I think in a service learning class especially is building a, a safe learning environment where students feel comfortable coming in and being honest. Because one of the things that's challenging, I believe with service learning is oftentimes you're asking students to do things that they're not comfortable with. They're not going to just get to sit in the class and listen to me lecture. They're gonna have to leave campus or talk on the phone to somebody that they don't know that they might not feel like they can relate to right away. And they might really not like that. <laughs> there are certainly students who are like, I hated this experience. And I say, that's okay, you can hate it, but I bet you learned something from it. And so let's talk about that. But what that also means is that they have to be comfortable enough to say that. And that can be really hard to say in front of your professor that's grading you. And so we do, I do, um, oftentimes, almost always in a service learning class, have them work with a base group, which is three or four people that they're going to get to know really well um, so that they can come in and have pretty honest, honest conversations with them. And I don't listen in. I don't grade them. I'm there if they have questions or need to process things, but they do that with that group. And then we do some collective reflecting. And of course, that's where I have the opportunity to tie in the class content, which I would love to believe that they're just naturally making those connections. <laughs> Not always the case. <laughs> Sometimes it does, and it's beautiful. And when it doesn't, I can remind them. I mean, it's hard to make those interdisciplinary or curricular connections when an experience has been emotionally overwhelming or personally impactful. It's hard to say, well, now I'm only going to focus on processing the course content really analytically. <laughs> And, and while you're also dealing with all of, of the personal emotional stuff that happens during service learning. So that makes a lot of sense that a guide who understands the content well would need to help facilitate those connections. Yeah, if I have a class that I feel like is really struggling, sometimes I'll have another faculty member come in and process with them. And that way they can speak really honestly. It's not somebody who's grading them. Um, but it is somebody who is an authority figure who knows the content. And so I found that to be helpful. I don't do that all the time, but you can read the room and decide when a, a group really needs that extra level of opportunity to be vulnerable without any fear of repercussions, which of course is happening.
equity numbers, we know that's not a thing, but as students, I can understand why they, they can't quite get there. So I'm in a different field from you, but I'm curious if out of your experience, you have advice for someone like me who's mostly teaching in person and for the very first time is thinking about service learning in an online environment, how do I ramp up for this? What, what should I keep in mind? Yeah, I mean, I guess from a practical standpoint, the first thing I would suggest is really being thoughtful about how whoever you're trying to reach in the community is responding to technology as a, a modality to receive services. So some of our community members are loving it. They love that they can be on Zoom all the time. They're very comfortable with it and they're happy to engage that way. And some are going to struggle and need a little bit of a more um, hybrid approach where maybe there is some Zoom component, um, but there's also something else happening. And it may not be us and our students directly interacting with them but perhaps they're interacting with each other in a space where they're already together. So that's already a safe space for them. And so we can provide some service that can be used in that space, even if we can't be there in person. One of my values in service learning and community engagement in general is honoring communities is already, you know, having culture and having traditions and spaces that belong to them. And I don't just want to barge in and say, I'm here to help you in your space, right? And so the idea that I can be something that I give to them that they use in their space, but I'm not actually there really meshes well with my values. So I want to hear more about this. Yeah, that's a, it's a big challenge because you have to really know, get to know the community pretty well or um, have some kind of in there to understand the community. But I'll give you an example. I have a class right now that's working on employee wellness. So Small groups of students have been matched with organizations in our community, small businesses that don't have employee wellness benefits, right? That's just not a thing for small businesses. And so we're going in and assessing their needs and trying to figure out how we can help provide just a small snippet, just one little thing. And some of the organizations are like, oh, we have like totally embraced working from home. We're never going back. So whatever you create, we just need to be able to do it completely virtually on our own. And some are saying, if we're not sitting together in a room, we're probably just not going to do it, right? Like we need you to create something that you can give it to us. It's prepackaged, but when we use it, we're together. And I love that, right? That they're getting to be really honest about what their needs are. And then we can try and meet them in that space. It also is forcing my students to meet one of our class objectives, which is learning how to create programs that can be implemented without us there. Um, and that's really, really challenging. When we did our programs in person pre-COVID, we talked about that and we tried to do that, but we could always fall back on making on the fly adjustments and now we can't. And so I think that's a really big advantage, but it, in a lot of ways, it makes it harder from the student perspective. I just want to highlight one thing that you said, which is it's helping you better meet one of your course learning objectives. I suspect that one of the pitfalls of this kind of work is going to be that there's such a small number of things that are both virtual and service learning that maybe I'm willing to sacrifice on whether or not it meets 
the learning objectives of the course. But obviously when you're creating a course, there's no point doing service learning that takes your students on a tangent. It has to be clearly related to the outcomes. Yeah, and I think that's important too because service learning is not an easy pedagogy, right? Like it would be a lot easier for me to walk in class every day and lecture and call it a day. Less time consuming for me, less administrative barriers. Now, with that said, there's a lot of value. So I've done some research about the emotional side of service learning for faculty, and there are both emotional facilitators and emotional barriers. And a lot of faculty say that it re-energizes their teaching and it helps them feel more invested in the community. And you get to know your students in um, more intimate ways that can be really fulfilling. So there's value there. But there is the other side of it, which is higher rates of burnout, some frustration when students don't buy in. And um, one of the big ones is this idea of emotional contagion, that if my students aren't liking it and they're putting off negative vibes, it's hard for me to not internalize that and feel really negative myself. And so um, the more you can sell it to your students, right, like this has practical application for your life, for your career, so the more you can sell it by tying it into your learning objectives, the easier it is to create the positive vibe and have positive emotional contagion, which is what we, we all want and dream about. So I'm going to go back to our, our previous conversation about reflection. It feels like that's a real opportunity for reflection also, not just for students to think about the experience they're having and the work they're doing, but to track their progress towards the course learning goals. I don't know about you, but I find that when I'm clear about what the learning goals are and that students are going to be graded on the learning goals, they take them seriously. <laughs> and so giving them opportunities to say, you know, how does this experience help you meet the learning goals? And how do you think it might apply to a future career? And those things, it seems like reflection could really help you make that sell. Yeah, I certainly in almost every reflective assignment or kind of guided reflective prompts that I give students, I always ask a question, how do you see this applying to your life, to your career? And um, what I found with service learning is that, and this may be health specific, so if it is just applies to health, then everybody else just tune out for a minute, <laughs> but I don't think that's necessarily true. And that is that service learning often helps students think about the interpersonal skills that are required to be a professional in their discipline, um, where they're in the classroom, they're so focused on learning the science and memorizing anatomy and nailing down the constructs of the theories. But when they get out into the environment of service learning, they get to just think about people and form relationships with people and realize that it doesn't matter how much science they know if they can't translate that into the language that the people they're working with can understand. And so the reflection on the professional connection often is, I have better communication skills now, or I realize that motivating people is more than just giving them facts. I have to connect it to something that they care about. And those skills that are maybe not the first thing we think of when we think about our profession, we start to, students especially, start to realize how important they are. And, and I love that. That's what's exciting about service learning as they learn new things about themselves. And I learn new things about myself. 
I love it. I also have learned a lot from you today. I'm especially excited about the three examples of service learning projects online that you've given us today. Moving from an in-person activity to uh, virtual wellness coaching was the first one. That's really exciting. I think, especially as a language teacher, I'm thinking about how could that sort of virtual conversation apply in my context. The second example you gave us was the wellness education boxes. I'm really excited about that from a culture perspective for my discipline. Like how can we share the culture we're learning about through a box like that? So many possibilities. And um, can you remind me what the last one was? It slipped in my brain again. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. The third one, it was the employee wellness programs. Right. And I mean, that is really substantial service learning because that requires networking with small businesses in the area, um, bringing in experts and consultants to talk about where's the niche that you can fill. I mean, that's a really substantial project that's doing a lot of good. Thank you for sharing the examples and the structure and for writing the faculty focus article that led us to this conversation. Yeah, this was a wonderful um, outcome of that article, which, like I said at the beginning, was really just me processing out loud for the rest of the world. We can still do this. I think it was a pep talk to myself that service learning is going to have to look different, maybe forever, maybe not, um, but that we should not abandon this great pedagogical strategy, even though it is going to be challenging and you know, the research that I have most recently done on service learning was looking at the value to students and kind of their skill development around service learning. And I, I kept thinking, I can't lose this. <laughs> like, this is such good stuff. How do we hold on to it? And it does look different. And it is certainly harder to reach certain segments of our population when we can't be in person. And I hope that someday we'll have both options, right? That we'll be able to do both. But certainly we don't want to lose the, the momentum that service learning has, and the value it can bring. Yeah, and I, I think there are a lot of people who were, have not traditionally been able to incorporate service learning into their courses and being able to reconceptualize what service learning might be into something that can happen virtually uh, will open the doors even more people participating. I agree. Well, thank you so much for, for sharing your work with us today. Thank you again for inviting me to be part of your podcast. It's been a pleasure. That was Jill Lassiter, Assistant Professor of Health Sciences at James Madison University. Thanks to Jill for taking the time to talk with us, and thanks to Leading Lines producer and Center for Teaching Assistant Director Stacy Johnson for the interview. I mentioned at the top of the episode that the Center for Teaching has led a number of offerings for faculty on the topics of service learning and community-engaged teaching. In the last 12 years, those have been led by my CFT colleague, Assistant Director Joe Bandy. Joe has an incredible passion for the kind of teaching that makes a difference in the lives of our students and of our community members, and he's put together a number of excellent resources on community-engaged teaching that's available on the CFT website. Please see the show notes for a link to a starting point to explore these resources. I need to give a shout-out to another CFT colleague right now. 
Rhett McDaniel stepped down from his assistant director position at the Center for Teaching in April to take on a new role as the director of course development and instructional technology at the Vanderbilt School of Nursing. We're very happy for Rhett. You may not have heard Rhett's voice on this podcast, but you've heard his work since he's been our producer and audio engineer since Leading Lines launched in 2016. This podcast sounds so good because of his hard work, attention to detail, and incredible audio engineering skills. At the Center for Teaching, we are going to miss Rhett's good spirits, his bad puns, his strong coffee, but we're glad to know that Vanderbilt will continue to benefit from his experience helping instructors make the most of technology to support student learning. If you see Rhett in person or online, tell him congratulations on his new gig. Leading Lines is produced by the Vanderbilt Center for Teaching and the Gene and Alexander Hurd Libraries. You can find us on Twitter at LeadingLinesPod and on our website, LeadingLinesPod.com. This episode was edited by the Center for Teaching Digital Media Services team, which includes Seth Shepard and Tracy Davis. Look for new episodes the first and third Monday of each month. I'm your host, Derek Bruff. Thanks for listening, and be safe.